Tonight, we begin with a reading from the book of Mark. Time passes. It's an unusual night. It is the night of the full moon, but also the super full moon. The night when the moon is bigger, brighter, and closer to Earth than any other time. It is Saturday, March 18th, 2011. The moon rises in the early evening, and the night sky is astonishingly transformed. I sense it is time for some magic, time for some alchemy. Now turn your eyes away from the page if you are of a delicate or sensitive nature. And should you read on, keep these words to yourself. But I'm going to guess that if you've read this far, and you know me, I will not shock you. I bless two doses of lysergic acid dialthamethyde. I take the two trips. The night progresses, and around 10 p.m., with the moon enormous and bright, the sky cloudless and silver gold, I venture down to the woods, alone. I enter the woods through my usual pathway, my accustomed route, and the pathways are muddy, slippery, and dark, and though the moon is bright, the woods are shaded and dark. I do not take a torch. I wish for my senses to fully engage. I do have a staff that I carry to guide and support me, a familiar, if you like, a friend, an old blackthorn staff. I know I am taking what might be considered a shamanic journey, one in which I will encounter deep and hidden secrets, both within the woods and within myself. If I am to trust the woods, and more importantly, if the woods are to trust me, I have to bear my soul, make my vulnerabilities plain, and allow my intentions to be known. It is time for us to really get to know one another. Then the Lord answered out of the whirlwind and said, Okay, fucko, who is this that darkeneth my counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me, Dilrod. What wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding, baby boy. Who hath laid the measure thereof, if thou knowest, or hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Who laid the cornerstone thereof, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut up the sea with doors when it break forth, as if it issued out of the womb? When I made the cloud the garment thereof, and thick darkness a swaddling band for it, and break up for it my decreed place, and set bars and doors, and said, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no further, and here shalt thy proud waves be stayed? Hast thou commanded the morning since thy days, and caused the dayspring to know his place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth, that the wicked might be shaken out of it? Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. 
It's September 16th, 2022, the end of a very long, hot summer. And all kidding aside, the sync community lost a giant this past month. Thank you so much for your warmth and love, Mark Golding. You certainly understood your path and voice and danced and sang like the Bodhisattva that you are. You are missed, but thank you for all of your art, which are touchstones in the center of the labyrinth for those who have eyes to see. Godspeed, sir. Yeah, I miss you, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a blow. But so this is a book club show, and we, the Forty Two Minute Seasonal Book Club, spent our summer with the King James Bible, the Book of Job specifically. But there is more than meets the eye here. The King James Version, also known as the Authorized Version, is the English translation of the Christian Bible for the Church of England, which was commissioned in 1604 and published. In 1611, sponsored under the sponsorship of King James, um, it is noted for its majesty of style. The King James version has been described as one of the most important books in English culture and a driving force in the shaping of the English-speaking world. The Book of Job, or simply Job, is a book in the Hebrew Bible and is the first of the poetic books in the Old Testament of the Christian Bible. Scholars are generally agreed that it was written bef- between the 7th and 4th centuries BCE. It addresses why God permits evil in the world through the experiences of the eponymous protagonist. Um, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? How are you doing, Zanor? Very good. Uh, Doug, could you just you say where you just to the uh, the audience where you took the first bit you read from sure so that was um from mark golding's passage in sync book volume two it's uh the very last chapter it's called dance the deep line and it's about his own experiences going from like he, he uh connects his own personal healing with the healing in his outer landscape um and the healing of his son so um it's a really moving tale about how he he found this I mean he was just trying to make water flow like it was all about mm. getting things to flow and by getting the water to flow he found a spring and then he cleaned up the spring and it's almost like a like he he found the uh, the fountain of youth kind of but um, it it his son healed at the end of it you know and and I think someone was married at the at the spring um, yeah, it's 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 amazing though that he is he's talking about the the book of Job as well, right? Well, so <laughs> it's just so interesting because, like, depending on how you want to think about what Job goes through, like, so that's the interesting thing that Young kind of gets into is mm-hmm. um, he takes he takes the whole Bible as a literary thing that tells a whole journey of it's almost like a psychological individuation. Right, right. And so... It's the psychology of God, basically. Yes, right. Yeah, I should pull... And and man, and man as a reflection, or humanity. Um, Yeah. No, it's it's great, that passage that you read, though. Uh, um, But you, you have to let the darkness in, and so that's what's interesting about Job, is that you've got... Yahweh definitely is is both... You know, like he is the light and the dark. And so 
you know, right. it's hard to understand all this darkness coming out of God when we want God to be just the light. Yeah, and and yeah, Jung's big point is at the beginning he's he's not self-reflective, and then that's that's what causes him to sort of breach the law and go crazy and get jealous and. Um, so he needs to return to Sophia to uh, give him that balance. Right. But we're kind of we're getting we're getting we're really <laughs> deep. <laughs> but like my, I would no. I was going to say I was going to say about the uh, that passage from Mark. Um, I was lucky enough to have uh, sent two blessed gumdrops here, um, and I used the last one. Um, on this is why it ties into the book club. I used the last one on the uh, the hundredth anniversary of Ulysses, right before we we did that show, or right after I forget before or after. But uh, so that that's kind of my connection with Mark. And then and then I met Mark in London. Um, we went to the Tate Gallery, and there was a Blake exhibition. And so that's there's a huge tie-in with uh, the book of Job and Blake also, which I want to get into later. Um, yeah. But, but Mark is sort of, <laughs> yeah, he's a spirit flying all, all around this discussion maybe today. A, a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's but still then... in the Bardot. It, it's, he's still in the Bardot. It hasn't been 49 days yet. And like you said, he's, he's, he's a Bodhisattva. So I think he'll come back. Yeah. he'll forsake his own enlightenment and then come back to try to save us <laughs> well if you saw i should probably read that um let me go to facebook really fast and just see if i can find i think his wife shared a quote that kind of intimated that oh yeah um, yeah yeah you know that uh I should tell you that my only wish is for the end of all suffering, a dream of a world in which there is no pain, no fear, and no anxiety, and I intend to spend all of my life working toward that vision. You see, I believe that this is entirely possible, for I have seen it in my vision, and it is this very generation, we, you, us, that will re realize this. I am not alone. And then it's striking me, there's a lot of Jesus flavor in there too. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the kind of, uh, the idea that, you know, Jesus was saying about, you know, this very generation, um, the idea that uh, now, you know, like in, you know, penetrating into a, a timeless now. The other character Mark always reminded me of was uh, is uh, Tom Bombadil from the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Okay. Tom Tom Bombadil is yeah lives off with his beautiful partner Goldberry, and Helena's like that too. Like she's she's an amazing being herself. You know, um, they live off in a in a kind of forest in a cabin <laughs> and do art and uh, uh, yeah, it's great. Um, so in it, yeah, Tom Bombadil is sort of a uh, beyond good or evil type of person too. He's he he's the sole person in the the whole Lord of the Rings legendarium. He can make the ring disappear himself. <laughs> you know, it has no effect on him. He's like a, uh, 
yeah, he, he tosses it up and makes the ring disappear instead of him, uh, in, 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 instead of the ring making him disappear. You know, he's, he's beyond it all. Um, so that, that's, yeah, it's kind of the character hmm. that Mark approaches. Yeah. But, so it's, it's, it's weird how time has really gotten away from us. Um, I mean, so the, the pandemic, I think definitely, it, it feels like we just, we just had these moments with him, but I think they were two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we we did a book club with him for your book, but we also did the healing ritual before in in April, and I think both those both those calls were in 2020. And so I don't know. Yeah, I. <laughs> so you spent your whole summer with the King James Bible because of the literary impact, or I mean the poetry of it, and I spent. A, big chunk of my summer reading about the process of the committees that came up with the King James Bible. Um, oh, great. Okay. And so I'm just wondering after having done that, like it, it does, it is kind of dense. There is this, this awkwardness of the syntax, but it does sound otherworldly or like the voice of God in our own language is how it feels <laughs> to me. But like, <laughs> what was your experience with this and, and what did you make of that project for you? Um, yeah, I read the I read the King James version of the the whole Bible just because it has has had such a huge literary impact and something like if you want to get into literature, I think you should know the King James version. But um, but getting into it, I realized that although it's beautiful in itself, like that that version of the Bible is beautiful in itself, um, and it, it's worth reading just for that language. Um, the Bible is so much more than that, you know, and, and, and so I've, now I've been reading it in different books in different translations. Um, and it's, it just keeps increasing the, the, the meaning, you know, behind it, you know, it's, I think it's good to read the Bible in as many different translations as, as, it, as are out there. And I've been reading uh, since like I finished the Bible, finished reading the Bible in the, beginning of August. Now I've been reading the, the Gnostic scriptures and all the other books that are kind of cut out of the, the, the official version of the Bible. Um, and, and they just add to the picture as well. You know, it's, it's, it's like another esoteric layer, layer to it all. Um, so uh, yeah, so for me, I, it, King James version is, is great, but for me, it became a bigger thing of, of the Bible, you know, um, regardless of the version. Like if, if, if I could read it in Aramaic and Greek, I would. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think so. The King James version was kind of a dud when it came out is what I oh, understood. Oh, so, really? I didn't know that. Well, yeah. it was more. Um, th there's this strange. Um, there was a lot of tumult, you know, like with different factions in England at the time when they're trying to come up with this translation mm -hmm. but they're trying to satisfy mm -hmm. a number of people at the same time but there was apparently a geneva bible that was popular before and yep. it was still pretty popular after and it was more of a, a scholar's bible because it had a lot of maps and charts and things like this um that would benefit someone who's trying to study whereas you know the, those things weren't in the king james bible initially <laughs> If I'm 
not led astray? Yeah, yeah. The, my actually, my copy of the King James version is is similar to that. It doesn't have a lot of like uh, explanatory stuff or, or scholarly stuff attached to it. Right. So no footnotes, I, no annotations, no marginalia of any um, kind. Yeah, there's nothing like that in this. Yeah, there's there's a couple of maps at the back, and then and then the print is so small too. Like that, I had to, uh, like it was a struggle just to get through it with my eyes, but I, I did. But now I've switched to this. Uh, um, what is it? Like the one I just told you. It was the uh, the new Revised Standard Version, which is, it's an Oxford annotated Bible. And it's got it's got all the goodies, like uh, anything you want here, <laughs> like all the cross references and footnotes and maps and charts and. Uh, explanatory essays or anything uh, it's great yeah i um, was i there was a i was really into joseph campbell for a time and he was recommending i think um uh like the new jerusalem i don't know so it's interesting because like you're saying uh lots of different translations will illuminate different things and so like um if you're just trying to understand um so that's one of the things this this bible is a reflection of its age and people called it like the cathedral of england you know so like there were other places that were building these beautiful cathedrals um mm -hmm. but this is almost like the literary cathedral like they built oh, yeah. this um you know at the same time that a lot of the cathedrals would would be built being built and it really wasn't like like a genius that's responsible for it it really was a lot of people yeah. yeah and they would agonize over every word and they really were interested in in um it was supposed to be read aloud mm -hmm. yeah and that's the great quality of it yeah. um it, apparently it was um was based there were earlier english translations of the bible that they kind of borrowed from a lot yes know? um and then those versions can be traced back to St. Jerome's uh, Vulgate edition, which is his, his sort of Latin translation, an original Latin translation. And uh, this is something we might get into. Like I, I've been reading Blavatsky, like Helena Blavatsky, the Theosophist, um, about the book of Job. And uh, she's saying that the King James Version, which is also called the Authorized Version, um, kind of christianizes some of the language in the book of job like there's a part where it talks about the redeemer job talks about the redeemer and it in in that translation it makes it seem like it's a it's it's christ you know um whereas it's 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 likely the hebrew messiah or an even deeper notion of the uh the sort of enlightened self or something right? but uh but that's that's one of her critiques of it is that the uh King James version sort of Christianizes, or even getting going back to Saint Jerome the Vulgate, Saint Jerome himself sort of Christianizes the original language that is not. Um, it obviously is more Jewish, you know. It's like. Well, that's interesting because that reminds me how um, the King James version kind of flattens out the notion of Satan too, where as you have these different aspects, and instead of you know like there's uh lucifer or beelzebub or i don't i don't know for certain but there, it seems like there's different names for satan um hmm. and in in the king james i think it just becomes the devil you know it's like just or it it doesn't seem like it, it's as much it, it flattens out 
the character yeah, a little bit. Yeah, even even the association of the serpent in the in the in the garden in Genesis with the devil is not is not a necessary connection that's there from the beginning. You know, the serpent is a is a different character. Um, which is why it leads to all kinds of these Gnostic interpretations, which are kind of interesting. In a way, uh, Book of Job, it's, it's almost like a Gnostic text um, in, in certain ways. Yeah. Okay. Well, so let's, let's dig into Job a little bit. What was, your, what was your impression with fresh eyes this time about Job? Like, what, how did it land with you? Yeah, so I just read it again over the last week. Um, uh, well, yeah, the the whole the, what struck me this time is 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 the whole book as a kind of uh, initiation, right? A sort of an internal initiation, and not necessarily all those things happening to him externally, um, but he being judged by his own accuser, his own Satan in his mind. This is kind of an interpretation I was getting from Blake. Um, like Blake, I don't know if you know, he, he Blake did this whole series of watercolor uh, paintings, basically. Um, he started it, um, I don't know, he started in the early 1800s, but um, he, got a, uh, he got a sort of commission to change them, uh, of, the, of the Book of Job, I mean. But he got a, a sort of commission to change them into uh, to to make a version of engravings of them from about 1821, and then uh, it it was only published until 18 1825, and then he died 1825 or 1826, and then he died in uh, 1827. So it was one of the last things he put out is this uh, this whole series of eventually 22 plates of the Book of Job. Um, starting with a cover page and then 20, 21 different plates. And uh, I don't know if you've seen them, like people consider these as yeah, one of his masterpieces, you know, and it's, and it's basically scenes from the book of Job plus annotations from the Bible and from his own reflections. Um, like the Bible being the book of Job itself or, or other verses from other places in the Bible. Um, but they're well, amazing everybody... to look at. They're amazing yes. to look at, and it describes an it describes an initiation, basically. Um, so I think everyone has a sense of the Book of Job, probably on a superficial level. And the thing that struck me this time was the fairy tale. There's like almost a fairy tale quality to it, as far as like a tale goes. Um, mm -hmm. But f for listeners, could you like lay out the structure of it? I mean, because it seems like the, the the front matter happens really fast. Like you you're into the meat of it. Like you're you're really trying to come to terms with what happened. Like for the breadth of the the whole thing. Sure. So it it starts out basically in a council of God, and it's God and it's described as the sons of God, basically the angels, I guess, um, but including. Uh, satan yeah but satan in this um if you look at how it's translated originally in the in the, in the hebrew it's it, he's the accuser so he's playing kind of playing the part of public prosecutor at a at a, at a trial um and so satan 
God, God says to Satan, have you considered my, uh, uh, Satan was, Satan was on the earth and God was basically saying, well, what did you see down there? And then, uh, Satan tells him what he saw men are wicked or something like that. And God said, have you, have you seen, have you seen Job? He's totally righteous. And so Job is described as somebody who's, he's basically the, the richest man of his time. You know, he's got all these flocks of different animals and he's got seven sons and he's got three daughters and he lives a very, very happy, fulfilled life. That number and, struck me. So like the idea of 10, I don't know if I dream this, but it, it's like completion. So like he was complete. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing, the most important thing about Job is that he's righteous, right? He, he, uh, he follows the law to the letter, the law being the law of the old Testament of the, uh, of the, of the Torah, basically he follows it to the letter and everybody knows that he's righteous. He's, he's wealthy, but he's, he helps the poor. He does everything he can to uh, help anybody who's suffering. Um, nobody would, would have accused him up until this point of being sinful in any way. So he's kind of, he's blameless or sinless. And this is, this is the part that's most important in, in the, in the book. And then, so, Satan says to God, um, well, how do you know he's really righteous? Maybe it's only because he's so materially well off. If you were to uh, deprive him of all his riches and his external happiness, would he still serve you? And God basically said, yeah, sure he would, you know. So, and so he let God, lets Satan um, basically persecute Job just to see what would happen. <laughs> it's kind of a, a big experiment, a big judgment of, of Job. And so Satan uh, arranges so that all his flocks are stolen away and his, his children sons, are murdered. Or they're his, not murdered, but they're killed. Yeah, they're in a, they're in a like a big banquet together, and the whole thing collapses. the The whole building collapses on them and kills them all. Um, he uh, he eventually breaks out and boils after like Satan comes back and says, "Okay, we took away all his wealth," and, and God says he's still righteous. And then Satan says, "Well, what if I affect his body as well?" <laughs> and so and so basically, he gives him kind of leprosy or boils painful itchy boils all over his body and so at this point he's he's completely destitute homeless um he still has his wife but all his children are gone um all his friends like he, he of course being a rich man he used to be so popular before everybody has left him um homeless vagrants on the street throw rocks at him <laughs> you know kids uh kids uh pester and persecute them uh, persecute him so he's he's just in the the utter depths of misery and then his wife is saying why don't you just die curse god and die like kill yourself basically but joe refuses to do that he, he's he's like no uh, there must be a reason for this you know he doesn't know what the reason is but he he's like there must there has to be some sort of a reason for this um and then his uh his three friends come up, three remaining friends. They're described as kind of wise men. These are guys. Oh, yeah. The one thing to mention is that uh, 
um, Job is not a Hebrew. He comes from the land of Uz. <laughs> so, and I, so it's, it's kind of mysterious what this place is. Like people think it's Edom from the rest of the Old Testament, a, a sort of a neighboring kingdom next to uh, Israel, but not really sure where this is. And so his three friends are from three different places too. Um, there's Eliphaz, the Tamanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, Zophar, the Namathite. And they come to him and they, uh, they have sort of slightly different points of view, um, different points of emphasis. But basically they are saying to Job, you must have done something wrong, you know. God judges people who are wicked. Therefore, you must have done something wicked um, for him to judge you like this. And they even suggest, one of them suggests, if it's not you that's done something wicked, maybe it's your children who have done something wicked. Um, and then Job, all the, all the time through, is like, no, no, it's not. It's, it's, I haven't done anything wicked. I have no idea why God is, is against me. Um, and... I don't know. Yeah. How far do we want to go with this? Do you want to, do you want to take, do you um, want to take the baton from here or, or should we discuss that part or? Uh... Well, so like I was, I was just interested in the structure because from like a, from like a reading standpoint, it seems like once his friends start doing their monologues, it seems like that's when it starts getting a little dry. I mean, it's not a very long book of the Bible and it starts great and it ends great, but it seems like um, I don't know. It was it. I wasn't as taken with all the speeches. I'm, yeah, it's it's almost like uh, when you can start to differentiate the three and find out their slightly different perspectives and what they're trying to argue, it gets more interesting. Um, I didn't notice that until the second time either, though. But the language might be a barrier for meaning initially because it's in the King James, which might not even be necessarily a language that was ever spoken, or if it was, it was more in the 1500s. You know, like this committee is, they're really trying to pitch the language out of the ordinary. And by doing that, like even trying to read, so the second portion of the intro is is um god's answer to job um with cuss words because god god kind of seems like a prick right off the bat when he's when he's fighting job kind of like all right gird up your loins and give me an answer you know like because <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. like that's that's some really interesting stuff there but then so you have the three friends and you're saying they each have a, a slightly different perspective and once you're able to understand their arguments then it's a little more interesting but then there's um isn't there like one last friend who comes out and it seems like um yeah so yeah the last one is uh uh, uh i guess it's elihu elihu yeah and he's yeah it's elihu uh son of barakel the buzite but Buzite. he his his you know like he's the older one and he's really well, holding no, his tongue no he's the younger one yeah he's okay yeah he's 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 described as kind of a young boy and that's the reason he's holding his tongue he's letting the the older like the elders the wise elders say their part first and when he finds out that they really don't have any answer for job 
he comes in. And his, um, his response is really interesting because um, a lot of scholars think that his speech was kind of added in later and that it wasn't, uh, it's not really necessary um, in a way because he points to things like um, all, the, uh, all the wonders of nature as well um, and saying how, how hard it is to contemplate God and that God is so mysterious, who are you to judge him? And these are all things that are kind of repeated in the speech of God afterwards. Um, so, so people wonder, like, why, why was it necessary to kind of repeat that? But for Blake and for other people I've read about, uh, uh, Blavatsky, Madame Blavatsky, talk about Elihu as being the most important of the speakers, of the, of the four speakers, four friends. Um, Blavatsky calls him the hierophant, you know, like the, the kind of enlightened uh, um, teacher. Um, because he's the one who reminds Job that maybe you've missed out on something. Maybe you haven't. Uh, sometimes God talks to people in, in, uh, in dreams and visions. And maybe you haven't uh, paid attention to your dreams and visions. And maybe God has already talked to you and you haven't heeded what he said. Um, and so for Blake, that is, that is what sort of triggers Blake's, uh, sorry, Job's openness to this, um, theophany that happens afterwards where God's coming out of the, the whirlwind. If it wasn't for, uh, Elihu, um, he still would have been kind of mired in his own misery and doubt, you know? But so my rem remembrance, he, he doesn't blame God for his condition, right? Like he's yeah. not blaming of God. He still he still believes in God. Um, but he's wondering what he did wrong. Yeah, yeah. Even that's... though he knows he didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, that's the thing. He's always justifying himself. They they, they use that that term a lot. He he justified himself rather than God. Um, uh so so uh yeah this is this is the big question of the whole of the whole book it's what it sort of hinges on it's like uh yeah how can how can he be judged so harshly if, if there's a good god how can he be judged so harshly when he's he's done nothing wrong he's followed the law to the absolute letter you know um but yeah Elihu says this, this for Blake is, is the important thing, is that, that he's missing, uh, let me try to find it. He's, he's missing the, this deeper communication of God that might be there. So, all right. Um, why, the, the reason when we were coming up with the idea of doing the book of Job um, initially, you were, you were on this, Bible reading project anyway, but you're like, I think, and I was, I was, my own thought was, oh, it'd be fun to do the gospels or something like that. And, you know, to think about Jesus as a political radical or something like that. But you said, I think the book of Job is kind of like a key or like the, the cornerstone or, you know, the keystone of, of the Bibles in some strange way. Could you speak to that a little bit? 
Yeah, just let me, um, this, that idea comes from Northup Fry. Do you know Northup Fry? He was a, uh, he was basically an English literature prof at the University of Toronto at the uh, same time that uh, Marshall McLuhan was at the University of Toronto as, a, as an English literature prof. But Northrop Fry is like one of the top uh, literary critics. I'm um, like even, uh, I think, uh, uh, what's his name? The, the most uh, the big, the Jewish guy who died a little while ago. I shouldn't know his name. I'm just spacing on. <laughs> come on, come on, Doug, you know. Uh, I don't. Uh, everybody knows him. Uh, I don't know. I don't know him right now. Anyways, it'll come. Uh, oh, here it is. Uh, uh, Bloom. <laughs> How could I forget that? Yeah, Harold, Harold Bloom. Harold Bloom. Yeah, Harold Bloom um, studied under Northrop Fry for a while. So, so it's like a, it's a, it's a direct lineage. You know, I can't believe I forgot his name. But, um, anyways, Fry is amazing. I think he's great. Um, and so he's he's written a couple books about the Bible. He's taught he's taught about the Bible for a long time, but he, he's got two books. Um, one is called the great the first one is called the great code and that's the one i've read and that um that phrase the great code comes from blake who says blake says that the bible is the great code of literature um and so that's basically what how northrop fry is reading the bible and he's reading Mostly he's reading the, the King James Version as well. He's, he's reading the Bible as literature, right? And how it fits together as, as one solid book of literature that cross-references itself insanely all over the place, from Old Testament to New Testament, all over the place. Like if you, if you could link all that together, it's, it's, it's just one big massive web. But, but Fry says that the book of Job um, is... Well, like you said, um, so the book of Job is, is he calls it an epitome of narrative of the Bible. Yeah. So the entire narrative of the Bible, if you want to think of the Bible as a narrative, is wholly present in the book of Job in the same way as the book of Revelation is the epitome of the imagery of the Bible. Like almost all the imagery of the Bible is, is like concentrated in that one book of, of Revelation. And so he, he brings those two books together, but he's also saying, like you were saying, um, you can kind of split the Old Testament into two parts. It goes from the books of Genesis to Esther, and that includes books on history and law and ritual, right? And then there's and then it starts with Job, and it goes from Job to Malachi, the last book. And these are books of poetry and prophecy and wisdom. And so Job being the first book of that second half is kind of the genesis of, of that second half. It's the first book. It's the introductory book. So, so in the same way that Adam falls into suffering and exile, that happens to Job. So he's kind of the Adam figure of of the second half of the Bible. Um, and then he says, like, for example, uh, yeah, so he says that Job, Job has gone, gone through the entire biblical circuit of narrative, right? Like he, um, there's creation in it. Like you have the creation of the world with the counsel of, of God and, and the sons of God. Um, and then there's the fall, the fall of Job. 
And then there's even the plagues of Egypt during right before the Exodus. He breaks out in boils. Job breaks out in boils. And then, and then it's the fathers transmitting law and wisdom. Like the, uh, the three friends represent the whole series of wisdom books in the Bible. Um, and, then, and then it flashes to prophecy. And so the Bible does that too. It goes from wisdom, wisdom books to the prophetic books. And then um, so the prophetic insight breaks, breaks this chain of wisdom and gives you direct experience. Um, and, then, and then you come to the final vision of the presence of God and knowledge that we are, we are in life in the midst of death. Even though it's death all around the world, we are alive here, this life in the middle of death. And that's the point that the Bible ends in, in Revelation. Um, so, so Northrop Fry's view of Job is that it's everything is in there, uh, which is, I, I think that's great. Yeah. Well, that was 42 minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. <laughs> You've been listening to the 42 Minutes Seasonal Book Club. Uh, production of SyncBook Radio on SyncBook.com for more information about the SyncBook our guests check out past shows or just subscribe to podcasts via iTunes please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com if you like this podcast check out others it's currently all the SyncBook Radio archives are free we also feature a great search engine to help find you what you need just type in Mark Golding and you can listen to all those great interviews that we did with him over the years including our uh, healing event what would you call that the transformation or it was a ritual of working um, in april 411 working um, you can find it that way all this and more can be found at the thanks so much bye-bye mark
Nagapalit ang 